0: Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community.
1: Good morning, Long Beach Christian whoa, Th- oh, I'm so loud. Okay, I actually am one of those who never goes to the bathroom during greeting time, even if I have to go to the bathroom, because I love connecting with everybody. I love seeing people that maybe haven't been here before, or maybe you have only been here a couple of times. And I also love seeing people even that live in my house. <laughs> Hi, sweetie. It's, greeting is a beautiful thing. Um, I think maybe as I am becoming more of an older person who came to that event yesterday as an older person, um, I, I'm understanding how important it is that I'm seen and that I see other people. So that's just something that uh, I hold as a value. Um, I want to go back. I'm going to like throw, oh, production people. We have a new production person, Rebecca. <laughs> You may have saved my butt because I want to play a video and she figured it out so yeah Rebecca um, but when we read the scripture a while ago uh, can you we go back to the very first slide of 1 Corinthians 13 because when I read the first two lines my heart my heart was just caught there and it, they say this if I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy but don't love I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. I don't want to be a rusty gate for you this morning. But I know that I can be. I understand the responsibility and the honor of being able to stand in front of my church family and open scripture to the best of my ability. And I just, I just wanted to speak that out. And I... You know, in that moment, I actually got really emotional. And I thought, yeah, if I don't speak with love, I'll be a rusty gate. And there's nothing really worse than that.
0: And I know I have
1: been a rusty gate in so many parts of my life
0: when I have spoken
1: without love. So I want to begin with a story. And this is a story about my sister and I. My sister's name is Monica. And when we were um, in the ages of 9, 10, 11 we would do this thing that I instigated. It was called a pinching contest. (laughs) And this is how it went. She would let me pinch her arms. (laughs) Notice I said I instigated this. And when she couldn't take it anymore, then I had to stop, you know. But then I would let her pinch my arms. And I would never say stop because I wanted power over her. And I was going to show her that pain did not matter. I was going to be, I don't know, I was going to be like top pincher. (laughs) I was going to be the one who could take it. And um, I remember how frustrated she would get with me. And my sister never, never, in her entire life has never used bad language. I, unfortunately, go to a support group for that. But... (laughs) Uh, she would call me like the very fir- worst name she could think of. And it even made her, I think, feel ashamed. But as she was pinching me, and I was smiling at her, you know, like, I'm in charge. I got you. She would say, you pig. And I would laugh. See, that was just the, like the most amazing thing you've ever said to me right now. I received that because I'm on top. I win. Don't we all live lives like that to a certain extent in all of the different areas and arenas of the places that we find ourselves? Places where we just want to win. Places where we want to be on top. Um, If I'm thinking of my life today, I mean, I want to be a better cook than even my children, which is so small of me. But I want them to go, oh, it's mom's, you know, it's her stew that we like the best. It's actually, currently, it's her ribs that are better than the restaurant in Las Vegas. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, will, I want that. And it's a, just a kind of a strange, weird little way of saying, yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm good. So uh, let's read a scripture. And this is from uh, John, chapter 10. Because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Notice the choice. I lay it down of my own accord. I don't lay it down because I'm powerful or because I'm obeying the Father. I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from my father. So now I've got this theory that I stole. Amipotence. Can we put that slide up there? Amipotence combines two Latin words. Ami and potence. The first means love. And we find it in words like amicable, amity, and amigo. Or amiga. The second is the Latin word for power or influence. And we find it in potential and potency. So there's this man. His name is Thomas J. Ord. He is a Nazarene elder, theologian, university professor, and author. And he coined this word to stress the priority of love over power in God. Divine love, he says, amy comes logically before power, potence. Love comes first. He believes that God loves, moment by moment, both his creation and his people, us, and that this is best revealed in Jesus Christ. Omnipotence then starts with God's love. And everlastingly, notice that verb tense, ongoing, forever, forever. It creates others to love as well. So we're in this series that we're still in called Learning to Live and Love Like Jesus. And why do we want to do that? Because we we already come from the place that we know that God is love. Now this doesn't negate that he also has power. Hear me here, that's not at all what I'm saying. But really, God is love. And the, the, his son that he sent to us, we're learning to love like he did. And that's a process. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I have another quote, again by this Mr. Ord guy, where he just says that love takes time. And that, that makes me think of when John and I first met, and I think I've even shared this with you guys before. At the beginning, it was just goo-goo eyes, at the tall man, he was taller than. because, you know, as we age, we, we all shrink. Just goo-goo eyes at this guy. That's how, I, That's how my heart felt for you, sweetie. <laughs> but like he, the first time I ever saw him, we met on a blind date. He leapt, I wish I could, over a hedge. The sleeves of his shirt were rolled up. He had hairy arms, forearms back when hair on men was in style. I don't know where it is right now. (laughs) I think it's either or. Both is good. Um, And he just had this really beautiful way of not noticing. (laughs) And I was really pretty much taken right at the beginning. And that that takenness, you know, blossomed into probably unadulterated lust. And then after the lust came love. And then that love was very tentative at first. But then that love grew. And, you know, 40 years later, I love this man so very, very much. He's no longer the guy that can leap over hedges. Well, he probably still can't because he's... But, I mean, you know, we've changed. So many people would look and say, you haven't changed for the better. But the truth is, we have. Love takes time if we apply that to us, our church, our community, Christianity, I'm inviting you into the process. And I want to invite you right now even to take off the lens that you always listen with. You know, we all have this thing called confirmation bias. Mary talked about it last week as well, where we want to hear things uh, and we tune out the parts we don't like or we really focus in on the parts we don't like so that we can judge them, so that we can be right, So that we can feel powerful, kind of like me pinching my sister. Um, Yeah, and we listen and then agree with the things that we already believe. So I'm saying, take off those glasses. Put on the ones that have no rims at all. (laughs) And maybe listen and hear. Not what Barbara is saying this morning. But what the Holy Spirit Who is love, who is God, who is Jesus Christ might want to say to you today, listen to those words, whatever they may be, and then share with someone else what you heard. God is love. His steadfast love is relentless, compassionate, forgiving, redemptive, relational, and it lasts forever. Power strangely seems to cancel out love. The dilemma of affirming a powerful God who is also a God of love cannot be understood or fixed by starting on the power side. But the affirmation that God is fully and unconditionally love is meant for us to ask that question in reverse. If God is love, if he is What does power mean to this loving God? I want to tell you one more story before I really get into the teaching. And that's, uh, I used to work in the banking industry. I was a manager for savings banks. They're now defunct. Um, And I worked for a company called Great Western at 4th and Long Beach Boulevard. I managed a branch. I had approximately 30 employees. This was also about the time that I met John. I liked my job. I would, uh, even I would venture to say that I probably loved my job. I loved downtown Long Beach. Um, I loved being in the banking industry. By that time, I'd been there for a while. And I had, like, the most amazing boss ever. Her name was Hope Wilder. She was just the best. In fact, she was so good that they promoted her. Right away from being my boss. And I got this new woman who was very powerful, and she never even got to know me. She just knew that she did not want a woman in that branch, in that season, and that she had a man from another company she'd worked for that would be perfect for my job. Ah! So I got squashed in a huge power play. And what ended up happening was they transferred me because There was no reason to let me go. But they transferred me to a place, she did, to where I just ended up having to leave because it was too um, painful. Think again of the girl who pinched her sister. This was too painful for me, and I ended up leaving. So what does power mean to this loving God? What does it ultimately mean to us? And to put it in the Apostle Paul's terms in First Corinthians 13, which we read, love does not insist on its own way. Whew. But I want it my way. I don't know about you guys. I want it my way. Okay, now we're going to go to Clement of Rome. I have a picture of him. <laughs> there he is. He looks very Clementish, whatever that means. Okay, Clement of Rome is a church father. And he wrote several letters to the church. Well, he actually wrote one that they're sure was him. And he wrote it to the church in Corinth. And it was called 1 Corinthians. Sounds familiar? Yeah. Uh, The one that's... It was actually called Corinthians 1. And then the second one, there is a Corinthians 2... While they attribute it to him, scholars think he didn't really write it, but that's just knowledge for you guys. So he's a church father. He wrote this letter. He wrote it during the time that the apostles were still, some of them were still alive, but they were being martyred. They were aging out. They were dying. He knew Paul personally, and they think that he probably went on a missionary journey with him, and John might have still been alive. In this letter, he's talking to the church, and he's admonishing them um, about the power struggles that are happening. You guys, this is 90 A.D., and I'm going to quote Solomon, that there's really nothing new under the sun, is there? We're just the same people. We always want to win the pinching contest. We want to be the top dog. We're going to get back to Clement, but now we're going to go to another scripture. So I'm going to read for you Luke 22. And this is the voice translation, uh, and the disciples say, which one of us is the most faithful, the most important? You ever asked yourself that question? Jesus interrupts. The authority figures of the outsiders play this game, flexing their muscles in competition for power over one another, masking their quest for domination behind words like benefactor or public servant, but you must not indulge in this charade. Instead, among you, the greatest must become like the youngest, and the leader must become a true servant. This was um, during the Last Supper, you guys. We use this scripture mainly during communion. I was unaware until I did some research for this that this scripture even existed in the middle of Luke 22. But there it is. So... um, Jesus is forbidding he's forbidding hierarchical relationships among his disciples among his followers in his church there is no longer Jew or Gentile slave or free male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus he's teaching his disciples there's a new way of being human Remember when I said love is slow. Love takes time. Jesus is still teaching us that. He's still saying, "Would you would you do this newly again differently than maybe you thought it was meant to be done?" Can we be new humans? He's teaching us to reject power over. Brene Brown's words with others to become humble servants humble hum- humbling ourselves before one another power with his new kingdom is conversation it's community it's respect it's serving others it's loving our enemies it's love and it's love and it's more love our job is not to change others Our job is to love others. Clement calls this submitting the neck. How does that feel? Dangerous, painful. The possibility is we might die in this process of love takes time. But the New Testament, the Bible, the words that we read, study, listen to, trust, honor, believe, calls each of us to fully and mutually submit to one another. Power over was forbidden even for the elders. And in fact, 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3 in the R- NRSVUE, the most current one, says this. Tend the flock of God that is in your charge, exercising the oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you do it, not for sordid gain, but eagerly. Do not lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. Because we belong to one another. We each belong to one another. I actually... I long to belong to all of you, and I long for you to belong to me as well, because I need you, and I make up that you need me. There are 51 plus one anothers in the Bible, and that would be a great sermon series. But I'm just going to read a couple of them briefly. Galatians 5:13: "Serve one another in love." Ephesians 5:21: "Submit to one another. Philippians 2, 3, value one another above yourselves. First Peter 4, 8, love one another deeply, etc. 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 Notice I'm not just taking one verse and saying this is what it says and this is what it means. I'm I'm hoping that you're hearing that this is what the Bible says over and over and over. So back to Clement. I just love seeing his picture. Beautiful, right? Back to Clement. He was seeing in the church in Corinth signs that people were wanting to be over one another. There were power plays. They were becoming hierarchical rather than mutual. There was no mutuality. And each one was not on the same level. There was that sense of power over. So it kind of seems that Christianity is not for the powerful Hold on to that. I'm going to assert that. Christianity is not for the powerful. It's not for the self sufficient, not for those who have it all under control. It's not for those who are right. It's not for those who know the way. It might not be a religion for the rich, the strong, for those who have their lives in order. Jesus himself said that he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Mark 2. He blesses those who are poor in spirit, and he comforts those who mourn. He loves the weak. And I love this promise that is in Hosea, in the Old Testament. It's chapter 2, verse 23. I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say, to not my people, you are my people. That's love. If you know that story, God asked Hosea to marry a prostitute, and she left him over and over and over again. And all he ever did in response was to love her, to forgive her, to take her back. Could we be that with one another? Thank God Christianity is for us. (laughs) Everyone in this room, thank God Christianity is for me. The weak and the chaotic, the abused and the used, the mistake makers, and every other sin ever done to us or chosen by us kinds of people, thank God. That Christianity is for the weakest part of the body. And that God actually calls that weakest part indispensable in his 1 Corinthians chapter 12.22. And in Mark 7.9 it says how ingeniously we get around the commandment of God in order to preserve our own traditions. These verses tell us that there's actually good power and bad power because in Corinthians we're asked to protect and honor those without power. That means that we empower <laughs> with, with all that we know, and we always empower through our gift of love. And then Jesus in Mark, he's criticizing the religious for their misuse of tradition to enhance their own power. We don't address the issues of power very well. We don't trust our God-given powers within because we have them. We are either afraid of power or we exert too much of it over others. It's hard to imagine another way, but what if there is one? What if we're just really meant to share our power, to empower others, to, to always consider power with rather than power over or under because we hate being in the under place. Biblically, God has always used those who are inept, unprepared, incapable. In scripture, the bottom, the edge, and the outside is a spiritual position. Powerlessness, like in a 12-step program, seems to be God's starting place. He confounds the wise by using the foolish. And until we admit we are powerless, we cannot or perhaps we will not recognize, accept, or even seek the real power that the Holy Spirit offers us. Jesus identified with powerlessness. He was born in a stable, in a manger, smelly, dirty animal trough, to an unwed mother. He was raised by a stepfather. He was homeless at times. He was a refugee in Egypt. He didn't speak the language. He was poor. He had no home, no salary that we know of. He depended on others to feed him. He walked wherever he went. (laughs) He was falsely accused by empire. Then he was stripped naked and mocked as he hung on a cross between two other criminals. He constantly laid down his rights. Not only his rights as God, but his rights as a human. He laid those rights down as well. He humbled himself always for the sake of love. This fully God and fully man never powered over anyone. And it was his very powerlessness that broke and still breaks the lives of the enemy. It was his powerlessness that destroyed ultimately the evil one. And I know that that is a process that we're still in. He never stored up love. He poured it out. He stood outside of the power structures that were all around him. And he invited others to join him there and to discover that there's new life on the margins. He never ran from the things that broke his heart. And he said that when we help the least of these We have done it unto him, Matthew 25. Admitting our own powerlessness frees us. Letting go of our desire, our need to power over, even though we constantly fail at loving, is actually what keeps us learning to love. Love takes time. That makes me, that, this is such a segue, but this makes me just think of Michael Jordan and how many times he failed to make that basket. And yet he's, is he still the highest score? There's got to be a sports person in here who can tell me if I'm right. Oh, well, that's right, LeBron just did it. I should have done that. My point is we fail. We get it wrong always before we get it right. And sometimes that's the part we're unwilling to do we're unwilling to get it wrong so we don't do it at all so if if we want to learn how to love like jesus like the sign on the freeway says like every our web page says like we speak from the front every sunday morning let's take the slow road (laughs) and let's practice failing with one another what a beautiful thing that is What a beautiful thing that could be. Um, Bill Wilson and the originators of AA rediscovered the spirituality of imperfection and powerlessness, which really was relegated to a subtext when Christianity became part of empire with Constantine. And I think it was, I wrote it down here, 343? 313 AD, Richard Rohr, and I'm quoting him, says, when we align with empire, we're forced to prefer a spirituality of achievement, performance, worthiness, and power. Conformity to cultural virtue becomes much more important than the love of littleness itself or love of any outsider. we only love those that are inside that fit the structure of that empire it's as if Christianity has been Christianity has been saying that we have the perfect medicine for what ails you that medicine is called grace and mercy and the only requirement for receiving that is that you shouldn't have to need it so we're going to sing a song later on, all the poor and powerless. And we always say, come as you are. But what do you all do before you walk into this door? Don't you like buck up? If you're having a fight or if you're in a bad place, don't you put that smile on your face or decide you're going to stop the argument with the husband. I'm speaking for myself here. Or you're not going to be mad at your kids anymore, or you're not going to be, you know, whatever. Don't we all think that we have to walk into these doors, this church place, this place where Jesus is? It's not that He is in every other place too, but we come specifically here to meet with Him, and we find ourselves coming in looking as unmessy as possible. I mean, I'm wearing underwear today. I may not do that at home. <laughs> the, Think about it. What did you put on to come in here today? What did you put on? Maybe it was courage. Maybe it was a different face than the one you left your house with. Most of us don't go to powerlessness on our own accord. And neither has the church. But I think we need to change. I think there's a better way. Underneath our so-called power in church is a lot of fear. We're scared to give up our control. We're scared to give up our traditions, our old ways. We'd rather stay stuck in what we know. But when we go that way, Love takes time route. When we try something new, when we receive something new, when we consider possibilities, I'm going to say that magical things can happen. We could actually learn to love like Jesus. So I've got another word. It's called, I have to figure out how to pronounce it. <laughs> it's called higi and it is ancient Greek and it means to lead the way, to guide. But the King James Version many years ago mistranslated it or used a more obscure translation, and they translated it to mean rule over. And that has been a problem in the church ever since. Leaders, and we're all leaders because we are, the, we are a priesthood of believers, Leaders were never meant to rule, but to guide. And there's a big difference there. So um, I suggest we keep learning to live and love like Jesus. <laughs> uh, it's that simple and that hard. Um, in humble servant love, until all that is left is a world where love does reign. Love takes time. The Holy Spirit is described as dynamis, which means power. Acts 10, 1 Corinthians 2, Jesus tells us that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. True, humble, confident power means that we no longer need to seek power over because we have power within. And it is a dignity that we share with one another. And let's look at the Trinity. True power is circular. In fact, it's a circle dance of mutuality and communion. It is shared and it is shareable. And the beauty about a circle dance is that anyone can come in at any time. All you have to do is open your hands. It's so beautiful. But we don't seem to have adjusted to that power, even though we say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and always have. But the Father does not dominate the Son. The Son does not dominate the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not dominate the Father. All divine power is shared. It is power with, and it is the power of love. And it's available to anyone. So why do we still prefer kings and empires? And why have we made the one who described himself as meek and humble of heart, Matthew 11, as an imperial god with rules, the ruler? Greek thought entered the church. I've already talked about that. But it's really still here, people. We still have Western ideas for an Eastern god. Circles are much more threatening than pyramids. The kingdom of Jesus has always advanced through subversive acts of love. Christians have led the way. Can we do it again? (laughs) This is the part where I wanna say, can we get an amen? That's not usually my style, but can we do that again? Can we actually be the Christians who offer one another subversive acts of love? Yes, I love it. Love me sneakily. (laughs) Love me strangely, but love me. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Misused power. Okay, we're getting ready to end here. The power of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God, holding hands, all three of them, dancing in a circle, is the slow, long road to our own love. It's a path towards humility. It steps us into our dignity and into our voice. Hierarchy is damaging, but the power of the Trinity heals Renee Brown said this. She said, church has become power over, and Jesus was power with Jesus. All his lessons were about love. The most important teacher in the history of the world, his lessons were about love. So he's living that loving and sharing power. He's not respectful of power over. And then we have the church. Church. And we have become, she says, completely armored clergy. May I not be that. And maybe this is why the rusty hinge was so compelling to me. I don't want to be armored and useless and rusty. I want to be alive and naked and unashamed, metaphorically naked. (laughs) And unashamed in the most beautiful way. And I want you to know that I need you to love me. I want you to love me. And I want to love you because I'm loved by God. One last quote, and then we're going to watch a two-minute video. And then I have some questions. Dale Ryan said, power is a deceitful companion. There is nothing more dangerous than power that is not deeply rooted in love. So let's play that video. You can turn the lights off while we watch it, too. Production, amazing people. In the world.
0: And power, um, by itself, is uh, a deceitful com- companion. Because we, we will think we are powerful when we're not. We will uh, cling to illusions of power. We will, uh, And we will also u- use power against pe- people. Um, so there, there's nothing more dangerous than power that's not deep rooted in the soil of love that's the heart of things so if power emerges out of there and it does I mean love is this tremendously powerful and empowering experience Um, it's it's difficult to really receive love at a deep and transformational level and go out and shame other people it's possible to experience myself as powerful and go out and shame other people. You know, if I'm just experiencing myself as a powerful guy, maybe I'm smart, maybe I've got leadership skills. All that stuff can be used against me and against other people. So it's all gotta be deeply rooted in the soil of love. Or when uh, when the struggle gets going, it, it, it will not sustain us, it will just be uh, kind of slip through our thick fingers, that that kind of power. It's real sustaining substance comes from deep roots in the soil of love.
1: Could we, would we really learn to love like Jesus and to live that way? So I've got four questions. What are you learning from the powerless anything? Who is powerless? Your own powerlessness? Whom are you helping to get their power back? How are you using your power? Do you power over? Power over? Pinching contest? I'm better than you Monica? Or power with? Mutuality? on even ground. You know, we may not think alike, but I respect your thoughts. I'll be curious about them. Power with. Are we willing to dance together in a circle? Dushka, are we willing to dance together in a circle? She's she's willing. Thank you. My prayer is that I was not a rusty hinge, not a rusty gate for you this morning. And we're going to move into communion now. And, um, yeah, I have some things I want to read there also. I want to read Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, my favorite. The best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. And then the table is also an invitation to be honest about the reality that some of my worst enemies dwell within me. God prepares the table in the presence of my pride, my judgments, my desire for God to strike my enemies and give them a painful death. My desire, my closed mind, my fear and my greed, my illicit desires, my complacency, my white lies, my desire for power over others. God invites me to stop trying to hide all those things, to lay them out instead at the table and receive His love. And then God sets the table God anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. And if you've never taken communion here, we offer something called bitter herbs. And someone will offer you some parsley that's been dipped in salt water and they'll say the bitterness of sin and death. And it will taste really bad because that's what sin tastes like, ultimately. But then we get to take that walk to the table where at that table we are fed the bread, the body of Jesus Christ. The wine, the grape juice that is his blood, those are the things that sustain us. There's forgiveness at the table. There is no judgment at the table. There are no power plays. There is a circle dance that happens. Everyone is invited. Jesus is so glad that you are willing to come to his table. So I don't know who else is serving communion, but you can come forward. And um, I'll move this podium out of the way. And our worship team will play some songs and you can come forward as you feel the desire.